So just as an aside, some people were uh, asking over the break a little bit about Gnosticism and the Gnostic Gospels. Who's ever heard of the Gnostic Gospels? Who's ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Okay. Yeah, uh, and people have a, a mistaken idea that just because it's called Gospel of Thomas, that it actually comes to us from Thomas. All right? the, the Gospel of Thomas was written about 200 years A.D., and, you know, when we're talking about that many years, we might have stopped to realize that would be like me claiming to, to author something from Thomas Jefferson. You know, hey, a long time's passed. I'm not sure that's really from Jefferson, that thing that you're claiming is from Jefferson. Um, so these, these Gnostic Gospels, remember, that's the point I tried to make about uh, the, the way that we kind of amalgamate the, our society into our faith. We don't even realize it. I think these people, these ancient Gnostics, they, they might have really thought this was Christianity. But it's a totally different religion. It really, it's, it's not a Christian heresy. It's actually a different faith. It's a totally different faith system. You're a soul trapped inside a body. That's what Gnostics believe. We don't believe that. We believe you're a soul and a body. And in heaven, thanks be to God, it's going to be body and soul. Just like Jesus risen from the dead. And you can be able to do cool things like think yourself from one place to another with no transportation required. Just like Jesus did. Walk through walls and and there's going to be food. Right? We know that because Jesus ate stuff. After the, and so, hey, it's, it's looking good. But we're not a soul trapped inside a body. The purpose of our life is not to kind of break free out of this prison. And our disembodied self, after we die, you know, we put the body in the ground and the soul lives on. That's an unnatural and temporary state. Because there's going to be a resurrection of the body. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And it's going to be a new and improved edition. Okay? No need for any plastic surgery or diets or anything like that. It's all going to be taken care of. Whatever it is, is going to be the way it's meant to be. Okay? So let's take a look now at uh, let's take a look now at at the, at the letter. All right. Now, right here in the very beginning, Paul sets the, the theme for the whole letter. Remember that I said the theme uh, for Ephesians: our response to God's grace is what makes this unity possible. It's what makes this unity possible. Um, Okay, so let's take a look at this now. Blessed be the... Now you've heard the background. I hope some of this makes more sense. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He destined us in love to be His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of the glorious grace which He freely bestowed on us in His Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of His grace, which He's lavished upon us. For He's made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, a purpose He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Okay, this is how unity is realized. One great big long sentence. Okay, Paul has his unity beginning with one great big long sentence. Um, and he lists four blessings in this great big long sentence. Calls us to holiness. Because we've been redeemed, we are adopted sons, and he's made known to us his will. This is, this, this is, this is the source of unity. And just a tiny little thought about each one of these. He's called us to holiness. And I think sometimes we need to stop and think about that word. You know what the word holy means? The word holy means different. That's what it means. The word holy means different. Okay? 
Isaiah has that, has that vision, holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. It means different, different, different. Different from what? From the secular, from, from, from the secular, from the ages, from everybody else. I'll give you the, I think I've said this before, a, a brief summary of the prophets in the Old Testament. Prophets keep reminding Israel, you've got to be different from the rest of the nations. That's how you're going to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. Israel says, but we want to be just like everybody else. Doesn't that sound familiar? Why do we have to be different, Pope? Why do we have to be different, Bishop? Why do we have to be different, Father? We want to be like everybody else. If you're, not, if you're like everybody else, you don't help anybody. God set you apart to be different because that's how you're going to be of service to people. Right? Holy, set apart, okay? different uh, in, in God's sight. Not pleasant, not nice. By the way, the word nice, you know the etymology of the word nice? It comes from the Latin word neshire. Neshire literally means to know nothing, to be stupid. Okay? So nice is, is really a mediocre virtue. Right? We can do better. We can do better than knowing nothing. Okay? Uh, blameless in God's sight. It's not going to be fully realized until heaven, but he, he, gives us, he gives us the plan. All right? He gives us the plan. How will it happen? He's redeemed us through his blood. He gives us the grace. He gives us the strength. And he makes us his adopted children, his adopted sons, sons and daughters. Okay? Um, there's a, 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 a likeness. There's a unity, which we'll get to in, in, in just a moment. Um, but even though there's chastisement, even though there's hardship, even though there's struggling, even though there's dif- uh, difficulty here in this life, as there always is between a parent and a child, you know, uh, discipline of raising somebody well, it's always done in love. And sometimes I think we can kind of forget that. Sometimes we can forget that God is goodness straight through. And He's incapable of doing anything that causes us harm. And whatever He allows, He allows only so that a greater blessing can come about. You know, like we say in Mass, we do always and everywhere, well, well, always and everywhere to give you thanks. And he's made known to us his will. This is another thing I think sometimes we kind of gloss over. Um, the will of God is mysterious, but as I've mentioned before, we come to know it by doing it. We come to understand it by, by putting it into practice. You know, people often think that um, uh, first they want to understand uh, then they'll believe. When in fact, the real process is the reverse. If you first believe and act on it, you'll come to understand. And that's how we know the, the mystery of His will. Right? This, is, this is the recipe for the end to divisions. Holiness, doing God's will, accepting in, 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 in faith and love what He, has to, what he sends from his, from his loving hand. Okay? Um, that's the first part of it. Okay? And Paul uses some, uh, some images here I want to just throw at you here. This is from chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 11 to, to 22. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by, that, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, remember that phrase, remember that phrase, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. For he who is our peace, 
who's made both of us one and has broken down the dividing wall. Remember that phrase? The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. Making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, bringing that hostility to an end. He came and preached to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit in the Father. So you're not strangers and aliens no longer. You're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're also being built, a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Okay. Paul uses rabbinical phrases here, and he's directly appealing to Jews, uh, and he's trying to kind of show the unity of Christianity and Judaism here. That phrase, you who are far off, you've been brought near, that's rabbinical language. If somebody came into Judaism from the Gentile world, the rabbi would say, you who used to be far off, I now bring you near. Then you were in the covenant community. Okay? He says, you know, by baptism you're now in the covenant community, the one that's united in, in, in the blood of Christ. Okay? Not by circumcision, but, but, but by grace. And here's the metaphor that I really want you to pay attention to. This is where your, your, your little maps are needed. Okay? He uses an, a word here. He's broken down the barrier of hostility that kept us apart. Broken down the barrier of hostility. The word that he uses in Greek is the mesotoikon. Right? That was the word that was used as the barrier around, you see here, south gate and lower gate. See that thing, court of the Gentiles? There was a great big wall that kept the Gentiles out. So here in the temple area of Jerusalem, they had all these courts. Right? There was the court of the priests, and that's how far you priests could go. And then inside the temple, you got a couple of rooms. Uh, the holy place, where it says temple. And the back room there, the holy of holies. And only the high priest, once a year, on the feast of, 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 of Yom Kippur, would walk into the holy of holies, where they used to have the Ark of the Covenant. And he would say the unpronounceable name, the name of Yahweh, a pronunciation we've lost in history. Okay? Nobody really knows how to say that word anymore. It was the only Hebrew word that had no vowels. And the high priest would pass on the pronunciation of that word from one generation uh, to the next. Uh, just totally as an aside, just because I think this stuff's interesting. Back there in the Holy of Holies, that's where they had the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was lost after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Am I throwing too much history at you? I mentioned that a couple of those things in, in, in homilies before. It was lost, but still, the spot where the Holy of Holies was was to be trod upon by no one but the high priest and to this day to this day in the city of Jerusalem a devout Jew will not walk across the temple mount for fear that he might walk across the spot that was reserved for the Holy of Holies but they had the priest's court they had the men's court sorry ladies but you guys were kicked out you had your own court okay and outside that, they had the court of the Gentiles. Okay, um, and uh, this is the this is the barrier of hostility that, that he's talking about. It was a fancy marble wall, kept all the Gentiles out, and there were twelve plaques all along this marble wall with a message that if anyone proceeded any further, he was liable to instant death. In fact, in 1871, they found one of the tablets and they read it. 
And it said, Let no one of any other nation come within the fence or barrier around this holy place. Whoever is caught doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death must ensue. Okay? Um, and by the way, when Paul was brought for trial in Jerusalem, one of the trumped up charges was that he brought Gentiles through the, through the, the Gentile gate. They were trumped up charges. Um, but here's Paul in this passage saying, now, now, in Christ, the old way is gone. What was the temple for a Jew? Do you guys know what the temple was for the Jew? The dwelling place of God on earth. That's what the temple was. The dwelling place of God on earth. Who do we say the real dwelling place of What's the real dwelling place of God on earth? As Christians. When did did God come to this earth? In Jesus Christ, right? Everybody knows that answer, right? Good. Um, The dwelling place of... That's why we say Jesus is the true temple. Have you heard that before? And you are a dwelling place of the God in, in the Holy Spirit? You've heard that before. Because the Spirit of the living God now dwells in you. We don't have a Holy of Holies anymore. You're the Holy of Holies. A rather sobering thought the next time you're tempted to treat somebody badly. One of my favorite little meditations, C.S. Lewis, he writes a, a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Who's heard of that? Nobody? Beautiful writing. The Weight of Glory. And in that, in that sermon, he says, you never rub elbows, you never cross paths with a mere mortal. Every single person is destined to immortality. And if you could see them now in their glorified state as they will be in heaven, you'd be tempted to fall down on your face and worship them. You'd think that they're a God. The dwelling place of God on earth. We are the temple. The life of Christ pulsates through every one of us, kind of like the life of your body pulsates through every one of your cells. One life, but they're all alive with one life. We're all alive with one life. And Paul's trying to tell the Ephesians, this is the way things are now. Okay, this is the unity. Everyone having their place, everyone having their part. We'll get back to that in a second. And by the way, did I, did I tell you about the word for disunity? The word for disunity in Greek. It's dia balain. Dia means two. Balain means to rip in two. Dia balain. What does that sound like to you? Diabolic. The diabolic is that force which tears in two. The Holy Spirit is the force that unites. And one of the clearest signs of the diabolic in our society as we speak are the deep divisions among us. Unity is the work of the Holy Spirit. Division is the work of the evil one. We must work and try to build up unity as as, as much as we possibly can without sacrificing principle, of course. Okay, It's the evil spirit that divides. Okay. So, um, uh, the, um, this is how unity happens. And, and these are, the, these are the, uh, the causes of division. Paul's trying to talk now about how uh, we make this unity possible, how we respond to it. Let's take a look at this kind of old-fashioned wisdom here, okay? Uh, I'm reading from chapter 4 now. Uh, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy, to make this unity possible, a lead a life worthy of the calling you've been given in all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all, and through all, and in all. By grace, but grace was given to each according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some should be prophets, some should be evangelists, some should be pastors and teachers, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, of mature manhood, the measure of Christ in full stature. We might no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine and the cunning of men, their craftiness and their deceitful wiles, but rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by every joint which with it is supplied. When each part working properly makes its bodily growth and builds itself in love. So let me talk about that for just a second, okay? Because I think this is really amazing. Um, there's three things Paul says that cause uh, division, discord amongst ourselves, personal conflicts, okay? Discord in ministry, ministerial conflicts, and false teaching, and false teaching. Okay, so the first step, he says, let's address the sources of our discord one from another. And he says, if you want to build that up, take, take a look at these four things. Humility, meekness, patience, and love. And sometimes it helps to take a look at the, the Greek words here. Okay? So the Greek word for humility is tapenos, right? Now, in the ancient world, humility was not seen as a virtue. Aristotle thought humility was a vice. Aristotle said the virtue is always in the middle. You ever heard that before? Virtue in mediostat? No? Anyway, now you have. Um, so he said that pride was a vice and humility was a vice. You wanted to be somewhere in the middle. And that kind of makes sense, except for the fact that uh, uh, that's not a Christian understanding of humility. Humility is not sitting around thinking how awful you are. A lot of people think it is. Humility is just the truth about yourself and the truth about God. Okay? Uh, Will Rogers, who was no great theologian, okay, he once said, if it's true, it ain't bragging. Right? If it's true, it ain't bragging. Uh, go ahead and brag all you want. Go ahead and brag all you want, one person to another. You're smarter than somebody else. Go ahead and brag about it. That's fine. You're better looking than somebody else. Whatever it is, you got more money than somebody else. But you know what? That doesn't mean anything because you weren't made in the image of Joe Dokes, you are made in whose image? You're made in God's image. Try measuring up to that. All right? That's the measurement that we have to measure up to. And that's where real humility is. When we recognize how far we have to go to be like Christ. And so this word, uh, 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 tapenos, it was used of the simple, those of no repute, those who were simple um, um, and uh, and, and that's kind of our I, that's kind of our understanding of humility. We begin by being very simple uh, with one another, treating ourselves as though that we were somebody of no particular repute or no particular renown. You see those little uh, bracelets people have? I am a Catholic. In case of emergency, please call a priest. You ever heard the uh, the variation on that for important people? I am an important Catholic. It says, in case of emergency, please call a monsignor. <laughs> Okay, so meekness. Here's another important one. Meekness. Uh, the Greek word is praus. And this is a beautiful word, praus. The Greek word is praus. Aristotle uses this word to describe somebody who's angry at injustices, but it's not angry at trifles. Don't you love it when people get bent out of shape over a trifle? Okay? No. Aristotle uses this word as a real virtue. When, you, when, you're, when your anger is about a true injustice, but not at a trifle, you don't get upset at the wrong thing. Prouse is a word that means somebody who's self-controlled. 
Somebody who's entirely self-controlled. It was actually the word used for a domesticated animal. Prouse. Okay, it's actually a very, very beautiful virtue. Patience. Makrothumia. Okay? That basically means being able to deal with other people. That's what makrothumia is. Being able to deal with other people without complaint. And agape. Agape for love. You guys know what agape is, right? Told you about the three levels of love. Have I said that? I think I did. Philia. Uh, it's kind of like your 50-50 love. Eros. It's all about me love and agape. All about others. That's the word he uses. That's the word he uses there. Uh, an end to division about ministries. An end to division about ministries. He uses the word diakonia. What's that sound like? Deacon. Anybody know what the word diakonia means? Diakonia means service. And specifically it means table service. Diakonia is the word that means that you're waiting on somebody. You're cleaning up their dishes. It's a humble, simple service. Okay, um, And what Paul says here... Uh, uh, about this diakonia, is he says right here in this his passage, this is what builds up the church. The word he uses is katartitsein. Uh, and again, this Greek, it, it's, so, it's so rich. Katartitsein is the word that a surgeon uses to put a joint back into place, to heal a broken limb. Mark uses it as, in his gospel as the word that repairs a broken fishing net. What repairs the disunity in the church? Paul says, diakonia, table service. Okay? So sometimes people get all bent out of shape about their, 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 their ministries or their roles. Part of the reason why they transfer priests. So, so no one guy will think, you know, this is mine. No, no, it's not. <laughs> you might get moved next week. Don't, don't cling too tightly. Okay? Uh, but that spirit of service, that's what a servant does. And that service heals wounds. Paul says. And again, this is this beautiful message that shines through in the original language that Paul wrote it in. So that's what I'm trying to share with you here. It's like a surgeon healing somebody who's sick, sewing up a a wound, setting straight a broken limb. Okay? Uh, Lastly, false teaching. Okay? Needs to profess true teaching. And Paul says, profess the truth in love. Who's heard that before? Veritatem and caritate. Let's take a look at uh, let's take a look at each one of those two. Okay, the truth. All right. Um, you ever heard people say, uh, you know, I'm not into dogma, I'm not into doctrine, I'm not into rules, I'm into love. You ever kind of heard that? Well, the response to that is, well, no, you're not, because without the doctrine and without the dogma, there there is no love. There has to be a content to it. There has to be a truth to it. You can't have love without truth. Okay? Or it's like a marshmallow. It's got, it's just, it's got no substance to it. But you don't want to have truth without love either. You don't want to have truth without love either. Paul says this, this beautiful phrase, the truth in love. Somebody who's all truth and no love. You ever been on a playground with the first graders? And somebody hits somebody else or somebody calls somebody else a name? And what do they say in response? It's true. It's true. You know, it's true. Yeah, it's true. But there's no love. Some people never grow up. They're like that their whole lives. It's true. It's true. A lot of politicians are like that. Okay. And truth without love, it's a very harsh thing. It's a very, very harsh thing. It doesn't build up. But what we want is to have the truth in love. We want to have both of them. Okay. We want to have both of them. Um, it's it's love uh, that, that makes the truth acceptable. 
And it's truth that makes love possible. The two of them go together. So when Jesus sends out Peter, before he ascends into heaven, what does he say? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Then you can go teach in my name. Then you can go teach in my name. But first I want to know, Simon, son of John, do you got love in place? Because only when that's in place can you go and teach. I don't want to hear any... No teaching without love. Okay? It's, it's, this is the tough love, though, because there's, because there's truth in it. And he says, don't let anybody manipulate this teaching. The, the word that he uses there is the same word that's used for a shyster who manipulates a, roll, a pair of dice before he rolls it. Don't let anybody manipulate the, the teaching that comes down from Christ. Okay? Okay. Now, last of all, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, everybody's favorite section. Ephesians chapter 5. All right? Unity between spouses. All right? You guys have heard this one before? You guys understand what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, the, 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 the wives be submissive to your, to your husbands. I knew a guy who, uh, he went to... Uh, he went to Mass, and that was the, the homily at this, at this church. And the wife and the husband, they walk out afterwards. She goes, I didn't like that homily at all. And the husband is like, oh, we got to come back here more. This place is great. Um, anyway, uh, um, let's take a look at this, though. Okay? Keep in mind when you hear this, I want you to keep one thing in mind as you, as you hear this passage. Um, this passage from Paul to the, to the Ephesians is understood in the context of church teaching. It's understood in the context... Some things we read in the scriptures, um, they make sense of their face value, and other things need a little bit of explaining. Remember about the head coverings that he talked about to the Corinthians? Remember that? He said, ladies, you've got to have your heads covered. Well, do, do, do we teach that, that they have to have your heads covered? No. So just because it's printed in black and white, does that mean that it's the same as church teaching? No. Okay, here's where we understand this passage. Let me just read this. Let me just read this to you real briefly, okay? Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. And the church is subject to Christ. So let wives be subject in everything to their husbands. Ladies, don't get too mad. The, the explanation's coming. Okay? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is a great mystery, I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay. Um, the best source that I know of for this passage comes from Pope John Paul II's Wednesday audiences, which he gave for the better part of a year, every Wednesday from July of 82 to February of 83, he talked about this passage from Ephesians. And I'm just going to give you a crystallization of what he said. Okay? Um, the relationship between a husband and a wife, he kept emphasizing, is like the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the pattern. 
not like a drill sergeant to a recruit. Right? There's a headship, but it's a headship of service. It's a headship that was like Christ's own headship who shed his blood for the faith. Okay? And here's again where the, the Greek can be very, very helpful. When it says, be submissive to your husbands, the Greek word used there is hypotasisthe, which means submission and receiving in the same word. And what Paul was, and what, what Pope John Paul II was saying here is this isn't servitude. This is not inferiority. Okay? This is not domination. This is a headship of self-emptying, and it's mutual. It's mutual. He said it was a mutual, reciprocal self-emptying. Okay? A reciprocity. It's a parallel of, of, of what Christ did for his church. So in that light, the, the, the headship, it's, it's, it's completely understood uh, differently. What was Christ's headship over his apostles? What did he do? Wash their feet, for goodness sakes. Okay? Fascinating little insight from mystical theology. Teresa of Avila, in a passage that I don't have time to give proper context to, but she says that when she reached the heights of spiritual, uh, said the top of the spiritual stairs, she had this understanding that God all along wanted to be her servant. That Almighty God, ruler of heaven and earth, wanted to be her servant. That was his deepest desire, was to place himself at the service of little Teresa. Okay? Um, so here's your, model for, here's your model for husband to wife. It's a headship of service that's received and returned. Where do I get this from? John Paul II. All right? um, and then just, just very, very, very briefly here, because we're, we're basically out of time. Um, this passage from Ephesians, in which we say that the relationship between husband and wife is like the relationship between Christ and his church, that's foundational for understanding a matrimony. And we have some presuppositions about matrimony that we think every religion has, and they don't have them. Why do we say that the relationship between a husband and wife has to be permanent and faithful and life-giving? Because that's the way Christ's relationship was with his church. And if you push doctrinally any other religion, if you push them far enough, you'll find that they don't necessarily have a teaching, say, on absolute monogamy. Or an absolute permanence, for that matter. We have it because of Paul here in Ephesians. Okay? And so it really, this is a unique, a unique and beautiful understanding of, 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 of matrimony as the way it was meant to be in the beginning. But, but don't misunderstand and think that it's some kind of worldly authoritarian headship because that's certainly not what John Paul II is talking about. And, uh, you know, he's trustworthy, right? Um, so, okay, so uh, six little tiny chapters uh, of Ephesians, but a lot to say, a lot of it just wind up to try to tell you about the content of Ephesians. But the main message to Ephesians, outside of Christ, outside of uh, that humility, meekness, patience, love, outside of our response to that, we've got nothing but division one person against another. And this is our recipe, I think, for uh, rebuilding the church one soul at a time. Okay? So I've gone a little bit over here. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is uh, end a little prayer, okay? And then anybody who wants to leave can politely leave. Anybody who wants to stay, we can ask a couple questions, okay?